Caro, and welcome to episode 103 of Caro Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. This week, Caro Pop comes alive because our guest is none other than Peter Frampton. If you're within a certain age range, as I am, you got to know the supremely talented singer-songwriter-guitarist through the 1976 blockbuster double live album, Frampton Comes Alive. On AM radio, FM radio, you couldn't escape it. The Talk Box, Show Me the Way, Baby I Love Your Way. Do you feel like we do? Plus, as a friend recently reminded me, he looked so cool as that gateful cover opened vertically to show a backlit full-body shot of him in golden guitar god splendor with his vintage custom Les Paul. But although Peter Frampton was just 25 when Frampton Comes Alive came out, he'd already had an extensive career. He played with schoolmate David Bowie as a 12-year-old, was in a band managed by Rolling Stones bassist Bill Wyman as a 14-year-old, and was lead guitarist and singer for the British band The Herd when he was 16. At 18, he formed Humble Pie with Steve Marriott of the Small Faces, and the two of them shared singing, songwriting, and guitar playing duties. Frampton played on four Humble Pie studio albums and then the live album Rockin' the Fillmore, which outsold them all. But by the time Rockin' the Fillmore came out in 1971, Frampton had left Humble Pie to launch a solo career. He went on to make four solo albums and then a live album that outsold them all. By a lot. Now Intervention Records, a small audiophile label based in Gig Harbor, Washington, has released a limited edition all-analog mastered 3LP box set called Frampton at 50. It features the three best regarded of those four Frampton solo albums. Wind of Change from 1972 sets the template with his lyrical guitar work, often acoustic, plus rockers including The Lodger and All Right, both of which feature drummer Ringo Starr. The harder-edged Frampton's Camel from 1973 was intended to launch a band of the same name features the original studio version of Do You Feel Like We Do. The simply titled Frampton from 1975 took a commercial and critical step forward, though its two singles, Show Me The Way and Baby I Love Your Way, were not hits. The live versions would follow in just a year. Speaking from his Nashville home, Frampton tells us of his work with intervention owner Shane Bettner to prepare the fantastic-sounding, lovingly packaged Frampton at 50. And he takes us back to those early years when he was figuring it all out and setting the stage for his big breakthrough. Why did he leave Humble Pie? Did his songwriting change from that band to his solo projects? What was it like doing uncredited guitar work on George Harrison's All Things Must Pass, and how did that experience lead to his use of the talk box? For that matter, what is he really saying on the talk box in the middle of the live version of Do You Feel Like We Do? Is it as dirty as I thought it was when I was a kid? How did he come to write two of his biggest hits on the same day? How did his popularity in a few cities, including San Francisco, pave the way for Frampton Comes Alive? And how are his live shows different once Frampton Comes Alive took off? Finally, does he have any thoughts on Rolling Stone founder Jan Wenner's recent fall from grace? And is he more hopeful about finally being chosen for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Peter Frampton was on a rocket ship in the mid-1970s, and you'll have a blast riding along with him in this carol pop conversation. Enjoy! The stars are out and shining, but all I really want to know, oh won't you show me?
fantastic to talk to you. Thank you for uh, coming on. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Well, thanks. Well, I got this fantastic box here. Uh, oh, great. 50, and it sounds really great. And it's also just fun to go back to those those albums. How involved were you in sort of putting that together? And what was it like for you to kind of go back and listen to that part of your career? Well, I was, um, Shane involved me in, in every aspect of it. So from the finding of the masters to the mastering, which, which master we used, um, all that stuff. And then tutored me on how to make a good cover <laughs> because the, um, the card, I mean, it's better than it, than any of them. Uh, but the colors, we went back to the original color sheet. You know, I mean, it was quite amazing what he managed to do. Yeah. So that, uh, I applaud him for all that. Uh, authenticity is his name. Sure. You no, know? They, they, they sound fantastic. And I, I actually sent him a note commending him for the, the transparency on, you know, the sourcing of the, from the original master tape or from the British tape that was used for one yes. or two of them. And everything I've heard from Intervention has sounded wonderful between the tip-on jackets and the heavy vinyl. And right. so he it, does the extra mile. He didn't mess around. He doesn't mess around, you know, which is great. Now, did he come to you and say, I want to concentrate on these earlier albums of yours? Uh, yes. And, and I believe that, I'm not 100% sure about this, but there's an album missed out there. Something's happening, obviously. Right. I believe that Universal only gave him license for three at a time. So I think he skipped Something's Happening because it wasn't... If you'd have done the first three and not had Frampton, that would have been a drag, you know. Right. So, so I understand. But I'm hoping that... Because Something's Happening has... I want to go to the sun uh, on it. And there's other ones on there that, well, something's happening as right. well. So I do hope that one comes out eventually, comes back out on vinyl. Yeah, it does complete the progression. So yeah. maybe he, he can get that one separately. So the first album, uh, Wind of Change, uh, you've just left Humble Pie. You've decided you're going to go out on your own, even though you, you as Humble Pie have just recorded this Fillmore live album, which is about to come out and turns out it's going to go gold. But you right. felt like it was time for you to just sort of spread your own wings and, and do your own thing. Was there a shift in the way you wrote songs because you were writing them for yourself instead of for a band? Well, the thing was that I was I was always writing riffs for Humble Pie and songs for myself because we would we'd all come with riffs and and bits of songs and the the beauty of Humble Pie was we'd stick it together together you know and um, that was the fun of it and we just jam on a riff and turn it into you know whatever as the direction of Humble Pie narrowed to more um, what we were playing, like much more sort of uh, heavier rock as opposed to um, our whole act was, was pretty much energetic. There was, um, on the next records, there was not going to be a place. My music wasn't kind of fitting. We had all done acoustic stuff in the beginning, Humble Pie. Right. Just wasn't working for us at that. Well, the audience told us they like the stage act, they like that. So, well, that's why we did the live record. But uh, it was just uh, amping up a little bit. And my songs that ended up being on Wind of Change wouldn't fit with Humble Pie. Whereas before there there was, uh, we all had our own acoustic 
uh, tracks on albums for Humble Pie. Were those songs that you'd been stockpiling over the years, or did you just have a fresh go at songwriting after Humble Pie and wrote that batch of songs? I had them on the go, actually. I mean, I, I was already starting to write them, kind of like George Harrison stockpiling all things must pass. Right. He did rather better than I did. <laughs> you know, I did not know until I read your memoir, Do You Feel Like I Do, that you're on many of the tracks of yeah. All Things Must Pass. Yeah. It blows my mind to think it, yeah. Um, but I had met George on, on another session he was playing and producing uh, for Doris Troy. And um, the first production by a Beatle for the Apple label. Right. <laughs> so I just got brought into the studio by a, by his assistant, said, do you want to meet George? And I said, George who? <laughs> and uh, uh, long story short, I end up in the studio that same, that day I met him, 20 minutes, but not even 20 minutes later, I'm, I'm in the studio with uh, his Lucy, Les Paul, um, we didn't know what it was called then, right? Uh, or I didn't. The guitar that Clapton played on While My Guitar Gently Weeps. I'm playing that guitar through like the same amp probably. I don't know. But anyway, um, I passed the audition, as it were, and George was very pleased. And two weeks later, he called me up and, and said, uh, you know, I'm doing my own album now. Would you come and play on mine? <laughs> so I so I said, of course, yeah. So it was me and George on acoustics sitting next to three of Badfinger. So it was five acoustics, two basses, two drums, two keyboards, you name it, there was two of them. Right. Because it was that killer producer, Phil Spector. So Phil Spector's in the booth watching this all and orchestrating yes. this whole thing? Yes. He was a killer producer before he was a killer, I guess. <laughs> there you go. Um, <laughs> so when you listen, so, so first of all, which songs did you wind up on? And and when you hear the album, can you be like Other I Am? Um, There's such a wall of sound, obviously, with Phil Spector. I know. No, it's, it's a uh, plethora of acoustics. And I played on... Five, say five or six tracks, probably five in the week I was there. And it was mainly, if not for you, behind that. That locked door. Sorry. Locked door, yeah. The ones with Pete Drake on, the pedal steel player. Right. And then I left and two weeks goes by again and George calls me up again. He says, Pete, Phil wants more acoustics. So I said, you're kidding me. He said, I know, but he's Phil Spector. So, uh, <laughs> so anyway, but this time it's just me and George sitting on stools in front of the glass, looking at Phil Spector and the engineer. And um, they first put up, the four or five, six tracks that I'd played on, and I we overdubbed on those some more, you know. And then George said, oh, this is sounding good. Uh, put up some more, put up some more. So then this is where I, the gray area. Right. I, there's so many that I played on that I, he had to show me the chords like um, uh, My Sweet Lord. I, I had to play on it just about, I would say I'm playing on, 
at least eight or nine tracks, but I couldn't tell you the ones that we overdubbed to because my head was blank. Because guess what? I'm sitting next to George Harrison <laughs> on stools, and between numbers, we're, jam- we're playing the blues. And my mind went just as if I wasn't there. I thought the floor was going to open up. I was going to go in there. And that was that that is singularly one of the most important moments or most enjoyable moments of my life is sitting there in with George in front of Phil Spector. That's the most bizarre thing I can ever think of from when I was like starting to play guitar when I was eight or nine, thinking that one day maybe I'll play on stage, you know, and you go from that to sitting in Abbey Road <laughs> on two stools next to, you know, I mean, it doesn't get any better. Right. Know? I mean, you'd started so early and you, you know, you knew Bill Wyman early on, but still, right. this like, this Bill, was when level. I was 14, I saw, I mean, I spoke to him the other day. He's still going. He's just released a book. Bill Wyman has about the history of Chelsea. He's got two more books coming out. I think he said before Christmas, he's re- releasing an album right now and he's working on another album. So the man doesn't stop, you know, so he's on a track on the new Stones album, too, I read. Yes, uh, it was one. He told me about it because I I said, oh, that's great. They got you. And he said, well, it's an unfinished track with Charlie. So on drums. So he said they wanted the old rhythm section for that. Nice. So that's a great idea. So did working with George and Phil Spector shape what you were doing, you know, when you went into Do Wind of Change and all these other things on your own? I guess it had to have. I took all the inspiration in, but no, I kind of stopped. It was just Chris Kimsey and myself, engineer, and we kind of made it up as we went along. You know, it was like, ooh, everything was new, you know. Obviously, I'd recorded a lot before, but to actually do my own music you know it was a it was a big change so right and not to fixate on the all things must pass thing but pete drake was known for using the talk box is that how you were introduced to it that's how i first heard it and saw a physical one in front of me yes um so it was working on all things must pass that led to you using the talk box yes it was not only that pete drake lent his that one that i saw to Joe Walsh. For Rocky Mountain Way? And that's the one that's on Rocky Mountain huh. Way. Now, did he just bring it into the studio when you guys were like recording all these tracks for All Things Must Pass? Like, hey, he always had it with out. him in his bag. It was part of his accoutrement, you know? And he just said, you know, when they were changing reels, we don't do that anymore. There's never any time for a breather. <laughs> you want another take? Can't you, uh, can't you wind the tape back? <laughs> Give me a moment. So... <laughs> Yeah. And he just said, you want to hear something? I said, yeah. And he was instantly a lovely man, you know, um, and um, very affable and um, got out this black box and stuck it on the end of his pedal steel and then started plugging in wires and then put a tube in his mouth. And the pedal steel started singing to me with the sound that I'd originally heard on Radio Luxembourg. Late at night, when I was very young, they used their call letters like radio stations did over here, too. Right. Alvino Ray 
was the guy that did the very first talk box. And it was that fabulous <laughs> And I'd heard that when I was like nine or 10, 11, some uh, very young. And uh, I'd always thought, how did they do that? And then I heard Stevie Wonder do it on Music of My Mind. Jeff Beck do it because he was working with Stevie. <laughs> uh, he did it on uh, She's a Woman, the Beatles number. Then I met Pete Drake, and the rest, as they say, is history. Did you kind of tuck that idea in your back pocket? Like, one of these days, I'm going to find the right song for this. Or did you just start you know, messing around with it right away? It's all intermingled with Joe Walsh and Pete Drake because Joe loved Pete Drake's talk box. It was great for recording, but Bob Heil of Heil Sound. He makes microphones now, but in the old days, he used to make uh, PAs and rent them out, kind of the early Clare brothers. <laughs> and um, he was also a ham radio operator, and so was Joe Walsh. And they they were big friends. Uh, they come from the same area, I believe, uh, in America. And um, so they'd been these buddies for years. So being that Bob Heil was this technical guy, uh, Joe said to him one day, called him up and said, hey, I got this talk box from Pete Drake, but Bob, it's not loud enough. <laughs> <laughs> I need a louder. So um, Bob says, OK, let me let me have a let me have a think about this. And I, so bingo, he comes up with the Heil talk box. And I got one for Christmas in 1973. Ah, there you go. 1973, I got it uh, from Bob Heil and who I knew as well. And um, then right after Christmas, I went and uh, into a rehearsal room for like a couple of weeks and just messed with it and learned how to use it. And then the first time I ever used it on record was Show Me The Way on yeah. Frampton. But I was already now, before we recorded Frampton, I had introduced the talk box into Do You Feel at the end. For the live performance of it. For the live. Yeah, because it's not on the Frampton's Camel version, but it obviously is on the, you know, Frampton Comes Alive version very famously. So, yes. yes. And Show Me the Ways, and which is on the album Frampton, it's, it's pretty prominent on that as well. Yes. 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 So that's, that's the genesis of my talking boxing. I have to admit, when I would hear, uh, do you feel like we do, I guess on FM radio, we were always like debating on what you were saying um, when it was like, I want to, we always thought it was something like, we <laughs> yeah, always I, thought it was something they should have been bleeping. <laughs> what, are you, what are you actually saying at that point? Well, I can't, I can't tell you that. <laughs> I didn't see it in the memo. Well, after, I looked. After 54, whatever it is, 50 years, I still can't tell. I won't admit to saying the F word. You won't admit to it. I was like, I was. No, just I did. It, it isn't actually. It's thank you. It is. Thank you. But I never said anything because everybody. Oh, you say fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's true that when I went back to it. I thought it doesn't really sound like the F word, but no. at the when I was, you know, the right age for it, it totally sounded like the F word and we got a, little, a real big kick out of it. Little, uh, 
Oh yeah, it definitely sounds like fuck yeah, right? Yeah. No, I think I was like eleven or something or ten and twelve. <laughs> twelve. Oh, it was just per- perfect. Oh, you weren't good. right. Oh, you're a youngster. That's right. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Okay. Well, good. So we've cleared all that that up. I yes, appreciate thank that. Thank goodness. In honor of Antihero being Illinois' number one IPA yet again. Revolution Brewing is holding the sweepstakes. If you find a gold MVP in your 6 or 12 pack of Antihero IPA, you'll get a roster spot on the new Antiheroes franchise. Prizes include an official contract with the Antiheroes and a photo op at the brewery, exclusive team merch, an Antiheroes team pint glass, a $100 Revolution Brewing gift card, and invitations to franchise IPA events. Go to revbrew.com. So Wind of Change, you're sort of getting your sound together. You also have your sort of Beatles track at the end with All Right, with Ringo and Billy Preston and former right. Carol Pop guest, Klaus Wurman. And Ringo also played on The Lodger as well. Right. He plays really well on The Lodger. Like, that's a yes, rock and that song has some real propulsion behind it. Yeah, exactly. In terms of what you were doing at that point, do you feel like you were sort of figuring out your your sound and approach? I mean, it's a pretty accomplished first album, but it's also when you sort of listen to those four albums in a row, you can hear a progression of you finding the band that then becomes the Frampton Comes Alive band. Right. And that right. sound. Yeah, it was it was just a natural progression of learning as I go. Like I said, you know, we made it up as we went along and then went through various different incarnations of the band in a very quick period. Right. And ended up with, in the beginning of 74, with Bob Mayo coming in and Andrew Bowne, who was playing keyboards, moved to bass. So we had Bob Mayo, John Siomis, Andrew Bowne and myself at the beginning of very beginning of the year, uh, 74. And then Andrew decided he was going to go back and work on his solo career. Um, and that's when he left and we got, uh, Stanley Sheldon came in with the fretless. He was only in the band, I think three months before we recorded Frampton comes alive. So it was very quick, maybe a little bit longer, but. So Frampton's Camel is the second of those albums. And yeah. is the artist on that album you, or is the, are the artist actually the band Frampton's Camel? Well, it was supposed to be a band album, but the management got rid of the band basically in the deal, uh, which I didn't know about, you know, this, that sort of stuff goes on throughout. Well, I'm, su- I'm supposedly pretty good at math. But I don't use that side of my brain. I, I've never been driven by the mighty dollar or the mighty pound. Um, it's never been about that. So unfortunately, when when a, a manager or business people around you realize that, they take advantage of you, you know. When you're a creative person, you only have room for so much to worry about. And do you want to be worrying about your creative growth or do you want to be worrying about you know the numbers and so you want to be able to trust someone and unfortunately then and you know it still happens today they're just like a lot of people who take advantage of that situation yeah but frampton's camel is that was the band the band you had was frampton's camel It, it was and it was supposed to be i believe we had done a deal 
with each member of the band to, uh, you know, get uh, a percentage from that album. And but I, I don't think it ended up that way. But I wasn't to know that. It was very upsetting, the whole that whole thing. Hmm. But anyway, and then I just went back, just went back to Peter Frampton. Right. And then the fourth album is just Frampton. And even just calling it Frampton is kind of making a statement, right? Yeah. That was one of my better solo albums in total, um, even though I love Frampton's Camel. Um, and I mixed it myself, too. So um, that was my first outing as a mix engineer. So... I'm very proud of that one. But uh, yeah, Frampton, I think overall is uh, by far got the better uh, bunch of songs on there. So and you've shown me the way and Baby I Love Your Way are on that. Yes. And did you write those both in the same day? Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> that was a good day. It, it was a <laughs> it was a very good day. <laughs> um, I take that uh, day. So, um, yeah, I was in the Bahamas. I'd rented, borrowed Steve Marriott's cottage. You see, when I left Humble Pie, I didn't get any of the uh, the good the good shit. You know, they <laughs> they started getting money and um, and bought these uh, cottages on the beach. There was one for Frank Barcelona, the agent. There was one for D. Anthony. And there was four for each of the of Humble Pie. And so Clem walked right into that one and it got my cottage. So anyway, I <laughs> I uh, borrowed the cottage from Steve. We were still good friends and um, after a while. And um, that's when I, I wrote. I didn't write anything for a couple of weeks. I just sort of had a was just lazing around on the beach and stuff and then realized I better get writing. So that's when I wrote, I picked up my Epiphone acoustic and in the morning I wrote, show me the way verse and uh, music and one verse, one and the chorus. So I had a couple of verses to write. And then I said, well, I better move on. So I went, had some lunch, went outside, sat under a palm tree with my boombox and my, lyric sheet and my book my lyric book and by the time the sun started to set i had finished the lyrics of um baby i love you way wow like how did those songs start like when you started show me the way was was it on the, the guitar you finding the chords and then just sort of yes. singing over it yeah that, well, that, like, what it, was your process like at that point and was that typical of how you you'd been writing yes. for a while yes uh, oh, in fact i've gone back to that no drum machine, no nothing, no nothing. Just you, a guitar, or you and a piano, or whatever you want to write on. You know, I don't uh, write on trumpet. I don't know. But um, for me, I would always uh, just be playing and then come up with, oh, wait a second, what's that? And then I'd put my boombox on record and I'd put down a, the chords and then I, wait, wait a second. And then I would piece it all together musically. And then I would start writing to the lyrics after I had the chords and the melody up here, you know? Right. So it was the first thing for show me the way, just the beginning of the song then, or did you yes. come to that? Yes. So just those, the strumming of that. And then you started yes. kind of singing over it. Yeah. And then you got the chorus. That was it. Would you then go and record this to make sure you didn't forget it? Yeah, I would have the boombox. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. The five Sony 550A, which my tech, Jimmy Bowen, 
heard me talk about this and they don't make them anymore, obviously for years and years and years and years. years. Guess what he found? A Sony 550A boombox with the Electroset mics exactly the one like the one I used to record on. So I have it back now. Do you still have those cassettes? Um, some of them, but not not a lot of them, no. But I, I do have some old cassettes, yeah. The next reissue, you can uh, you could have the bonus tracks would be like your <laughs> the under the palm tree demos. Exactly. <laughs> so Baby I Love You Way was the same thing. You started writing the music of it and then came up with Yeah, same same thing. Uh the only difference really was same guitar, my epiphone, uh Texan, but Show Me the Way was written in open G and I so I didn't write something similar. I tuned the guitar to regular tuning for Baby I Love You Way. And as you mentioned, you were you were mixing on Frampton's Camel and, and you have production credits on these records. How much more sort of in control of your sound did you feel like you were by the time you were doing the album Frampton? Well, uh, Chris Kimsey and I had it down by then. I mean, we had a specific, I would use my Ampeg Echo Twin for lead solos, use uh, something else for rhythm or and uh, just the way we would work. We went down to... Uh, the castle in uh, just outside Wales, I think, and um, Gloucestershire. That's where we recorded all the tracks down there, which was fantastic. So everybody was in a different room, you know, with this enormous sound of each room. It was fantastic. So that's why the Frampton album sounds the way it does. Uh, it's got a very, very cool sound to it. And when you wrote those two songs, did you think, oh, you know, show me the way, baby, I love your way. These are going to be sort of signature songs for me. These are going to stick around for a while. Did you have any idea? No, no, I had no idea. And we just thought that uh, show me the way sounded like a an up-tempo single, you know. So, and everybody at A&M did. We all did, you know. And we thought, baby, I love your way was a great song too. So uh, we released both of them. Show Me The Way First and Baby I Love You Way Second and Crickets. I know, it's amazing. I've been contemplating that because it's like they came out, that album comes out in 1975, you release Show Me The Way, you release Baby I Love Your Way, they don't get played. A year later, because you're touring that album, you put right. out this other record called Frampton Comes Alive and you put out Show Me The Way and Baby I Love Your Way. Same order. Boom. I know same the same songs and they just both explode like everyone has to have that record. I have to give credit to three areas because in those days everything was regional. It wasn't from when they started programming all the radio stations the right. same. You used to be able to, I used to be able to say if you drop me blindfolded in a parachute in Los Angeles, I would know from listening to the radio where I was. And if you drop me into Detroit, same thing. I would know where I was. New York, same thing. But then all of a sudden, everything became homogenized and everybody played the same, everything. there was. Then it became more business-like because in those days, San Francisco put their arms around me when the Frampton album came out. And so did Detroit and so did New York. But San Francisco was basically I owned the airway. K-San Radio was uh, um, the new music kind of FM station 
and I owned it. It, it was unbelievable. I, I, I mean, my friends from San Francisco, and then I would hear from Detroit. So I think that because of those, and New York, because of those three areas, and as soon as that live album hit the stores, those three places just went like that, and it led the country. In the recording of the live album, those were cities like San Francisco where you could pack a theater and obviously they know the songs when you're playing them yeah. and there's a great response and so there's yeah. this electricity in the response and you know you might not have had that response in other cities uh because of this regional thing but in those markets you were huge and so that's yes. what came across on that record right exactly that was the first time we had 90 percent of the 93 uh, percent of the album comes from winterland in san francisco uh, that was the first time we'd headlined in San Francisco because we could. That was the thing. You know, Bill Graham, rest in peace. I like that man. And he raised us from the middle position to way ahead of everywhere. We were in the middle position in America. You know, we were the special guest, not the opener. And in San Francisco, in the middle of the summer, when we're promoting the Frampton record, Bill Graham said, no, he can headline here. People are going crazy for him. So um, that's that's why we decided that we would record there. So you were still a, a supporting act in a lot of the country, even on the album Frampton and that. Tour. Oh, yes. Yes. No, there were there was New York, <laughs> New York, Detroit and San Francisco with the three places I could headline only the only three. No, places. Chicago. I'm in Chicago. So no, no. Or Boston. Too finicky there. No. <laughs> <laughs> Did you feel like when you were touring that album that you were taking all those songs to a, another level? Yes. We realized, especially when we, after we finished the show in Winterland, we went into the truck and were blown away. He just played like three tracks and we couldn't believe it. How the energy and you felt it. You know, it was like really strong. And um, that's when I realized that if I have an audience uh, there ready to receive, as it were, and knowing full well what's coming, they've come to see me. My name's on the ticket. This this is this was the first time anyone had like I've been doing a show where Everyone had come to see me, not the opening act, not, not you know, uh, whereas all this time, it's like I told the actors on um, Almost Famous, because I was the authenticity advisor. Oh, nice. They, I love that. I love that movie, by the way, and love Cameron Crowe. So thank you. Um, so they would all come to me and say, what's my motivation? What do I, you know, when when I go out on stage and uh Oh, it's the motivation line, is it? Um, no. <laughs> so I said, your motivation is you are supporting Black Sabbath. And what I was told by my manager was, go out and steal as many of their audiences as you can, because one day it's going to be you the last on the bill. If you do that, you've got to go out there and put out 
and be energetic and make them remember you and take them home, you know, as your fans. So by the time we get to headlining, we're so energetic right? (laughs) and grabbing everything we can. But we've grabbed. We don't have to grab anymore. It's they're giving back. So there it is. There it is. Yeah. There's also this great symmetry in that you have Humble Pie, four studio albums, and then a live album. And the live album is the one that goes gold. And you'd even sort of expressed afterward, like, oh, maybe my timing wasn't so great because I left before they became big. But then you went and did four studio albums and then a live album. And your live album became like the greatest selling album of all time. So vindicating your own choices, I would say. Um, but the, the parallel is really interesting. Yes, it is. It, it is. When we released Rock On, which is my Frampton, if you, that's Frampton for me. Right. Fourth uh, album. Right. Humble Pie. When you realize that Rock On was the biggest selling album we had up until that point. Still wasn't a hit, I wouldn't call it, but we got into the charts and it probably sold a couple of hundred, maybe thousand. Everyone, uh, I think management and the record company said, look, you've got to give them what they want. They, Your records, Humble Pie's records, aren't the same as your live performance. Nobody's is, but... Um, you're ferocious live. Why don't we do a live album? So, and bingo, that's, so we got our first gold record because it was what they wanted. So (laughs) I do my four studio records, have my rock on in Frampton and it starts, you know, it did start, it got into the church, same as, almost exactly the same as Humble Pie. I don't think any of us said anything. We just went... Uh-huh. As if the next one's live. Right. It was a foregone conclusion. Why mess with a good thing? It works, you know? So that's that was why we did it. I was with a friend of mine yesterday who, uh, he was like sort of a teenager when when Frampton Comes Alive came out. He was talking about how transformative, just seeing the cover as a kid, like he thought it was so exciting that he knew he had to own that album just from looking at it and seeing you with that guitar and the gatefold when you right. bought it and opened it up. But I hadn't really considered that the cover itself was kind of a landmark in his own way. Did you think of it that way? Well, the only the only thing was it was there was a reason for that. In as much as um, in those days, end of the summer, after we'd finished touring and we had in 75 alive in the in the can we hadn't mixed it yet but we had it in the can and i was in la and we want the art department wanted to choose an album cover and that's when um there were three shots they lined up for me and i said oh my god i said i love the long one but all the others were this way you know right and horizontal Right. And this was vertical. I said, well, we can't use that one. I know it's gatefold, but how are you going to do that? So I said, let me just as, so I called Jerry Moss, which I you could do with Jerry anytime, day or night. The M and A&M. Uh, yeah. Jerry, can you come over and uh, just help me with this album cover? You know, it's the president, you know, just. <laughs> and, and so. He comes right over, you know, that was the way he was. I mean, he was so in, I love Jerry. We just lost him, obviously. But so he came in and he said, uh, I said, well, look, we've got to use the one of these two because this one's the wrong shape. And he said, 
well, why don't you open it up like that, the front cover, like just so happens, like that, and then put it put you down that way, and then it'll fold this way. I said, but but then I'll be the wrong shape. He said, doesn't matter. It's still there. And so that's how we changed. Yeah. Um, so then all of a sudden you're you're obviously headlining and you're playing bigger places. Did that change the way you played? I mean, I mean, obviously there's been so much written about, you know, how your audience changed and you appeal a lot to women and they were up front and the guys were right. in the back. Right, but right. like in terms of the, you know, you guys as musicians, did that affect how you were presenting your songs? No, not really. We were so thrilled. Basically, our stage act became the hit. So we couldn't lose. We just had to play our stage act, play the live record, and it was going to be a great night. You know, that's what they wanted. Normally, you'll have an artist that will come and has a hit single, and the audience will have to wait until the last number for, you know, right. or for for the finale. Here's my hit single, you know, but every song was a hit single. Because everyone owns that album, so they want to yeah. hear all those songs. Yeah. Do you write when you're on the road, or do you sort of no. take a break and then go under a palm tree and do the next I, record? I don't multitask very well. When I'm on the road, it's all from the moment I wake up to the moment I come off stage, is, and then I'm off. Um, I've always been that way. The whole day is for one reason and one reason. It's not like I go golfing and and you know like a lot of people like alice cooper he goes golfing before the show i can't do that i'm i'm like this i have a show to do i'm gonna make sure i eat right i rest i do this i practice i you know so yeah that's uh that's me i was wondering if you've been following all this jan winner stuff the last few days oh well i'm waiting to see if it's a reality because he's out of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and maybe not the, oh. maybe not the gatekeeper anymore. Is he, though? I want absolute confirmation that before I say a word that he has nothing, he's not appealing the decision, um, you know, to come back because, yeah, I, I'm not going to say it until I know that because otherwise I'll never get <laughs> and I don't really give a shit because I know he's in charge of it. And so it doesn't really mean anything. You know, I mean, I know some an artist that took him out to dinner and all of a sudden got got a nomination. So, you know, it's not, you know, I, I wouldn't want to go to dinner with him. So. <laughs> all right well we'll we'll keep tabs on it but i'm i I think and hope he's out and i hope i on one hand i feel like the rock and roll like i don't need confirmation any official confirmation of the music that i love so i think the whole thing is no fake. no exactly but then on the other hand i realize you're not in it and i'm like what come on so there you go yeah i you know uh the only thing i'll say is it will be nice if I were to be uh, inducted and it will be nice if i were were to be inducted while i could still play Sure. Because these hands, these fingers are starting to slow down because of age, but also my IBM, you know, and I don't know how long I've got basically to, to actually play. It's getting more difficult. 
Well, I hope it happens that you do get in and are able to play. And I hope you bring your tour to Chicago because I saw that you're playing some places in November, but it's not here. So that's because it's to punish us because we didn't, you know, Chicago didn't uh, embrace you before Frampton Comes Alive came out. So that's why that's the only reason it's Chicago's fault. Uh, Thank you so much. This has been just a total pleasure. All right. Bye for now. That's it for episode 103 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Peter Frampton for being so gracious, insightful, and good-humored as he took us on the thrill ride of his early career. Frampton at 50, Intervention Records LP box set featuring Wind of Change, Frampton's Camel, and Frampton can be ordered at interventionrecords.com. This is a limited edition of 2,500 numbered units, and reviews among the audio nerds have been outstanding, so don't sleep on this one. The individual albums are also available on CD, SACD. And be sure to read Frampton's 2020 memoir, Do You Feel Like I Do?, written with Alan Light. Frampton was diagnosed several years ago with an inflammatory muscle disease known as IBM, so he takes nothing for granted and tours are a big deal. He is one scheduled in November in the southern U.S., with the first date in Louisville on November 9th and the last one at Nashville's Ryman Auditorium on November 22nd. Fingers crossed more dates will follow. Go to Frampton.com for more information and follow him on Instagram at Mr. Peter Frampton and on Twitter at Peter Frampton. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Wake. Hey, Chris, I want to thank you. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter and Instagram at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also, visit carolpop.com where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming events and episodes. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks.